welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to evolve, we're revisiting some of the people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic that we profiled in earlier episodes to examine how the coronavirus has impacted them. Three years ago, we profiled Anchor ED, an innovative initiative developed in Rhode Island, where peer recovery coaches meet with overdose victims in the ER before their release from the hospital. That program has been emulated in communities across the country, including Ohio, where Brian Bayless, the founder of Thrive Behavioral Health Center in Cleveland, built a network of peer recovery coaches throughout the state. In March, When the pandemic hit, peer recovery coaches, like everyone else, went into lockdown. In order to continue helping people with their recovery, they had to quickly adapt to the new normal of social distancing. Joining me once again is Brian Bayless, the founder of Thrive Behavioral Health. And today, Brian shares the story of the rapid transformation of his peer recovery network in response to the coronavirus. As we begin, Brian describes his organization pre-COVID and the changes they underwent due to the pandemic. We uh, are a company of about 100 people. We have 80 peer supporters um, throughout the state. And our peer supporters were meeting um, people face-to-face through our community peer support. We also do peer support in health systems. But with the um, advent of COVID-19, we needed to make a change. Um, because we had to, you know, keep our uh, community peer supporters safe. And so we uh, developed a a tele-peer support. Um, And fortunately, we're able to do that because um, Medicaid, Director Corcoran and Director Chris from OMAS um, were able to pass new rules to allow for reimbursement of tele-peer support. New rules introduced by OMAS in response to the coronavirus would pave the way for a new approach in a world of state-ordered social distancing. We were very well prepared for that because we've actually been in discussions with them for over a year um, because we thought telepeer support would be important for people that can't uh, get face-to-face peer support, i.e. people in rural settings, um, people that may have child care issues. So... um, so we were kind of ready. And then uh, about seven days ago, um, we flipped the switch and now we offer uh, telepeer support, which is done either by HIPAA compliant secure Zoom, um, where we can actually see people or people that don't have um, the right type of type of capabilities on their phone. They can just make a telephone call. So that's the uh, the switch we've made in the past eight days. 
Next, we talk about what it took to get the program up and rolling in just seven days. Everybody really worked hard. You know, everybody's focused on the mission. We know we have a lot of people that we have to help. In fact, it's even more people that we have to help today. Um, I just heard that, you know, the increase, estimated increase in um, use uh, is like 20% of people say that they've increased their use. Um, 12% of people um, say that they're experiencing significant um, mental health challenges. Um, So, you know, we really needed to put something in place very, very quickly. And so what we did was we, as I said, we had some processes and procedures already developed. Um, We went and uh, contracted with Zoom to get 85 licenses so that we could, you know, have all of our peer supporters on Zoom. And we did um, training of all the coaches, which was really, you know, quite the challenge to get everybody, you know, up and running. And I have to say the coaches have done an amazing job um, with this transition. It's very hard. If you could take a minute to talk about why the COVID-19 offers so so much more of a threat to this population? Well, um, number one is the isolation is very bad for people in recovery. And we're kind of forced in isolation right now. Um, so that creates a, a problem. Uh, secondly, the support systems that uh, people you know had in place, some of them don't even exist anymore. For example, there are no more in-person AA meetings. Uh, fortunately, there are virtual meetings, um, but uh, some of the treatment that people are getting is very limited. So there's, you know, it's a they're very limited options, and people really need help right now. So this, you know, for us is a, a real opportunity to make a difference. Kristen, a recovering crack cocaine addict, shares the struggles of adapting to telehealth and the new normal for her recovery. I stopped smoking uh, crack cocaine in December, but I was still smoking weed. And I found out I was pregnant in February. And, um, or January, I found out, at the end of January. And I ended up going to Stella Maris on 25th in Washington um, for treatment. And the caseworker was like, do you know anything about a peer supporter? I was like, no, I never heard of it before. She was like, well, I think that would be really good, for, you know, a really good program for you. And I'm going to sign you up. And I was like, all right. And then uh, she signed me up, and then they called me, and that's when I met my peer supporter, Ms. Sharita. Um, she's great, man. She helps me so much. Um, so I've just been with them ever since. It's only been like a month or two, but I really like it. It's a really good program. So she's helping you every step of the way. I want to talk just a little bit about how the coronavirus has impacted your recovery. Before this all hit, you know, what did recovery look like for you versus now in this lockdown society that we have? Um, it was easier because I do IOP still at Stellaris, uh Intensive Outpatient. And, you know, we would go there and, like, meet in a room for three hours and do group. Well, now we have to do it over video chat. Like, then it's a little bit more awkward, you know what I'm saying? And, like, it was nice to get up and get dressed and get out of the house and, you know, have a reason to get up and do something, you know, like you feel like doing something. Um, And then, you know, with AA meetings, like a lot of them are closed down. Like there's a couple of them that has been taking me to, but, you know, a lot of them shut down. So it's harder to like find them and they're all online. And I don't really like doing that online. You know what I'm saying? I like to like do it in person, like physically. And 
like really listen to people and be able to comment back and hear other people's comments. And, you know, it's just way nicer than doing it over the video. As we spoke, it became clear not everyone was adapting to the new normal. Change would take time. It's just, it's kind of hard, man. This is getting depressing. Being in the house, you know, it starts making your mind things like, damn, well, I could get high today because ain't nobody going to know. Or I can have a drink today because ain't nobody going to know. You know what I'm saying? But I don't. I fight the thought, you know, in my head because it's not worth it at the end of the day. My recovery means everything. That's my life now, you know, and I base my life around my recovery. But, um, you know, when I call my peer supporter and talk to her about it, like if I start having like those thoughts or something, I'll call her up and be like, look, Miss Rita, man, I'm going through it, <laughs> you know. So it's like, you know, it's just kind of hard, like not being able to go out and be able to interact with my peers that I was interacting with. So how important has telehealth been for you and the ability to get online and, and talk with uh, Sharita? Oh, it's very important to me. I call her on the phone. Um, I see her in person. So we're actually going to meet tonight and go to a meeting. One of the meetings that she knows that's open. Um, she helps me so much. Like when I'm down and out, I call her. If I feel like I have a problem, I call her. Even when I feel like I'm doing good, I call her. When it comes to the AA meetings that are still being conducted, what is the social norm now in relation to the coronavirus? They don't have like, some doors are open, so you don't have to touch them, but some of them aren't. But, you know, I use my sleeve to open doors. But as soon as you go in, because we've only been to one so far that's still open. It's her home group. Um, they have hand sanitizer in there. You know, we put hand sanitizer on. And the lady that actually runs the group you know how we're supposed to be six feet apart? Well, she put our chairs like six, seven feet apart. And there was only five of us in the group. So we actually like skipped a seat too. So we were really 12 feet away from each other. Um, so they are following the precautions of it. Just still having meetings because some people really need those meetings every day. Do you know what I'm saying? Some people don't have other support systems besides going to AA meetings like that. Social distancing equals social isolation and great risks for those struggling with addiction. When you start cutting it completely off, you're isolating. And when you isolate, you can, that's going to be a trigger for you to relapse fast. Because in a time like this, when we're early in recovery, it's hard. You know, we start, we start getting them thoughts. Nobody's going to know. Nobody, you know, this and that. But you keep your support system really close and you keep using them no matter what. Joining me now is Sharita Miles from Cleveland, Ohio. Sharita is a community peer support specialist uh, at Thrive, and she is a, uh, involved in the brand new telehealth system that was introduced just seven days ago with Thrive. So, Sharita, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What's funny is, especially with my peers, those that hated, you know, thinking about putting the effort into going out to meetings before are dying for it right now. They would give almost anything to be able to sit in more meetings, you know, in person. Um, it has forced a lot of people to kind of put up or shut up when it comes to your recovery and think outside the box and learn how to be comfortable and learn to enjoy your own company. Cause you can't go anywhere. You know, there's not any real distractions. So a lot of people have really been leaning on their peers because they can't, you know, fake uh, in person, see their counselors or in person interact with their support groups. 
so, you know, I've still been seeing a lot of my peers face to face because I know this has been very, I don't want to say difficult for me as far as my recovery goes, but I'm a people person. And that's a very uh, strong part of my foundation for my recovery. My peers who are early in recovery and just learning some new coping skills are struggling too. I know Kristen gets, you know, had struggles with her family relationships and I am constantly trying to encourage her to understand versus always trying to be understood because my history with her started since she's been in recovery. And I think, you know, as recovering people trying to mend our family relationships, we tend to forget how much crap we took them through, you know? So they have trust issues too. They have the memories of every other time we said, I'm going to get sober and stay sober. You know, they have a lot of hurt and it's our, the way we live our life that speaks louder than what we're saying, because most of the time they've heard it all before, you know, so they're protecting themselves and considering I've done that to my family, you know, and thank God, you know, that, that God shows some grace and mercy and I continue to stay clean this time. And that, you know, that was able to start mending some things, but she gets really frustrated because she's like, they don't believe me. They keep saying crazy stuff to me. And I just encourage her to walk the walk and talk the talk less and give time time. I wanted to learn how the recovery community was dealing with COVID. A lot of people who don't have any really solid practice consistently with uh, healthy coping skills, uh, their stress and anxiety is really getting the best of them. Uh, fear is dictating a lot of their behavior. So a lot of people are using, you know, a lot of people are really uh, struggling with, you know, oh my God, it's the end of the world. And we've been really, we meaning uh, my coworkers and people's sponsors and support groups have really been working hard to keep reminding them that part of this program is we live it a day at a time, focus on what's in front of you, and then move on to the next thing. You know, just working hard with people to keep them in the present and remind them of, you know, making a gratitude list and, you know, thinking where you came from so things could be worse. And it, it kind of, talks people off the cliff and gets them centered again. But it, it's been it's been rough. I'm told with, uh, you know, this lockdown that we're going through also, uh, the supply of illicit drugs is uh, is way down in the area. It's much of it is dried up. Is that true from your knowledge? No, <laughs> it, it, it is not. I, I got to be honest with you. I don't have a lot of contact right now with people who are uh, actively using, but the contacts that I do have say that it, it nothing has really changed except for the price of it has gone up. You know, you get less and pay more because of, you know, the, the, the pandemic right now. There is nothing so bad in life that using or drinking won't make worse. We pick up our conversation once again with Brian, who continues to describe the challenges of the transition to telehealth and what it took to make it happen. 
it was a real challenge. I mean, we literally switched in a few days um, from an in-person peer support to a telepeer support. And, you know, there were a number of logistical challenges, um, just figuring out processes and procedures and making sure that we developed something that was HIPAA compliant and secure. Um, so, you know, that was the technical challenges were big, but then the challenge of getting everybody trained um, so quickly. And, you know, it's um, it takes time, you know, it takes time to learn, but it's on top of the challenge of getting our coaches trained, then it's a new medium for uh, the peers. And, you know, some of the peers were not really accepting of that, although there wasn't much of an alternative. Um, so it's taken you know, a few days, um, but we've seen tremendous improvement in terms of engagement um, on the uh, the Zoom platform and uh, telephone calls. We've also found that it's much easier to keep somebody engaged when they're on Zoom as opposed to the calls. It's a big difference uh, in terms of being able to, you know, uh, provide all the services that somebody really needs. It's harder to keep them engaged on a telephone call. So we've really worked hard on um, making sure that we can get as many people engaged um, in the peer support as we can. And we're also looking at doing some group work as well. Um, that's something that uh, we're looking at. But right now, you know, it's been a uh, it's been an interesting transition and kudos to our peer supporters for the great job that they've done. It's easier to get them engaged and keep them engaged because of the video aspect of it that you have in Zoom? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. More accountability, I guess, is what it would probably come down to, right? Yeah, I think it's accountability and just the ability to see somebody. It's much more personal. So what's the future of the program? Well, the future of the program is we've always thought that telehealth was, you know, critically important uh, as, a, as an alternative um, because there are so many people that can't get in-person peer support. In fact, they're Greg, there's 17 counties in Ohio that don't even have a peer supporter. So, um, so to be able to, you know, offer that as an alternative, and a number of people have social anxiety. They don't necessarily want to get together with somebody. So we think the future of peer support is going to be pretty great. You know, over the next 90 to 120 days, we're going to have the opportunity to prove the efficacy of telepeer support. And so we're doing, you know, gathering quite a bit of data um, to demonstrate uh, just how effective uh, this new medium is is going to be. So um, again, you know, w- um, both Medicaid and OMAS have been you know very supportive in general of telehealth before COVID. It was just a function of making some of the changes, and uh, they did a really great job of that. So I think you know the other thing we're going to start to see is more group activity. Um, and we're looking at um, things like uh, telewellness um, is also something we're looking at where, you know, a nurse can um, work with a peer uh, and help them to, you know, educate them on uh, some wellness things, do some basic wellness checks. So we think that, you know, tele, the, our version of telehealth or the telepeer um, health is going to be a- around for quite a while. Across the country, there's many, many, many different communities that would benefit by this, by a program like this. What advice would you have those that would want to kind of roll this out in their community? How, would, how do they get started? 
Well, what I would start doing is make sure, you know, have certified peer supporters that are ready to, you know, assist individuals, um, get a contract with Zoom. You know, that's not terribly difficult, um, you know, and we'd be more than happy if somebody wanted to reach out to us um, to kind of help them through what they need to do to get a program like this started. As we pivot and go into a new phase of the pandemic and communities across the country begin opening up, new, never-before-seen challenges for those in recovery will continue to emerge. The sense of urgency of our state and federal leaders made adapting medication-assisted treatment and telehealth guidelines in the first phase possible. Let's hope that same sense of urgency carries over to the next phases and challenges in the weeks and months ahead. I want to thank my guests, Kristen and Sharita, who shared the added layer of vulnerability the coronavirus introduced into the lives of those in recovery. I also want to thank Brian Bayliss, the founder of Thrive Behavioral Health Center. We heard about the rapid transformation of his peer recovery network in response to the coronavirus. To learn more about what it took to roll out telehealth throughout their network of peer recovery coaches, the contact information for Brian will be posted along with this podcast on our website, cover2.org. This is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 